Yes, I mean, you, you, there are some fruits that are mechanically harvested now. So we, we mechanically harvest grapes. We mechanically harvest tart cherries. We mechanically harvest blueberries. These are established operations you know, throughout North America and the world. We mechanically harvest citrus. So there are a lot of crops that we do mechanical harvesting and everything is harvested at one time. The tree does go through a little bit of shock after that, but it's not it's nothing devastating. It will recover. In other cases where you have mechanical harvesting, uh, you may harvest the plant multiple times because the fruit are not all ripe at the same time. Increased stress is linked with teeth grinding and clenching, which causes poor sleep, jaw pain, and headaches. But did you know that one in every four adults grind or clench their teeth while they're sleeping? A Remy Custom Night Guard can protect your teeth from grinding and clenching while saving you hundreds of dollars compared to getting one at the dental office. Use code GUARD20 for 20% off your order. Visit shopremy.com now. S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Desmond Lane. Uh, He's a department head and a professor of horticulture at Auburn University. So we're going to talk about his work with orchards. So Desmond, thank you for coming. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about your current research. Okay. Well, first of all, I grew up in a small farming community in Southern Ontario, Canada, right near Lake Erie. So most people don't realize that Canada dips down into the continental United States about the same latitude as Northern California. So where I grew up was right on the edge of Lake Erie. And because of the lake effect there, we could grow a lot of tender fruit crops, great wine grapes like vinifera wine grapes, apples, cherries, pears, peaches, apricots, strawberries, lots of fruits that, you know, you couldn't grow in other parts of Canada because it's simply too cold. And so all of my experiences growing up as a kid working on farms in the summer were on fruit and vegetable farms. And I grew to love that aspect of agriculture. Mm -hmm. And then I I decided to study that in university and ultimately end up in a career working to address problems of the fruit industry. So just to be clear at the very beginning here, I'm a full-time administrator right now, <laughs> so oh, I, have, okay. I, I have numerous faculty that work for me who are doing research in the fruit crops area, and I oversee them, but I haven't been doing active research in the field for a few years now, but I'm still up to date okay. on all the latest issues, just as a, a matter of clarification. Well, that's great. We can still do an overview of all the major sure. projects that we guess right now. So let's, yeah. let's go into that. What are, what are some that personally interest you that's going on? Well, I would say um, any projects that are going to make a difference for the commercial producer in terms of uh, reducing his labor costs or reducing his risk. Risk could be environmental factors. It could be factors in the marketing part of the industry. So really trying to identify those problems that could occur and finding ways to mitigate them through applied research that we would do on their farms in cooperation with them, 
the development of new cultivars that would be resistant to disease and different production practices that could hopefully save them money and reduce their need for labor. Because honestly, right now in, in modern agriculture, particularly in horticulture, which involves a lot of hands-on work, labor is the primary issue that's impacting farmers' ability to be sustainable. Huh. When you say labor is against the problem of being sustainable, does that mean what it's just it's temporary migrant workers that do this work or why well, is labor sustainable? Okay, so uh, there's inad- an inadequate labor force, period. Oh, just not enough people to work. Okay. Yes. And so a lot of the areas of uh, horticultural production in the United States right now rely tremendously heavily on uh, migrant labor coming in through various programs like the H-2A guest worker program and others. And we simply don't have enough people in the United States who are citizens, let's say, who are interested in doing farm work. And so for a lot of these businesses to try and grow, to be even expand their operations, they, they need a steady supply of labor. And uh, there may be inadequate availability of labor either through the guest worker programs or through locally available people. And because farm work is hard, it's out in the elements and it's, you know, long days. And so we, we're looking for ways to try and reduce the, the number of hands, let's say, that need to be in a field doing the work so that perhaps some of those operations could be automated and increase efficiency where you might have machines that could operate, you know, say 20 hours a day and, and do it very high, with high skill and efficiency so that more ground could be covered and more fruit or vegetables could be harvested, those types of things. Well, can fruits and vegetables, well, I'm sure some can, but fruits, picking them out of the trees, uh, is equipment advanced enough for it to do it? Or do you still need people for certain fruits? Well, I would say yes, yes and yes. I mean, you, you, there are some fruits that are mechanically harvested now. So we, we mechanically harvest grapes. We mechanically harvest tart cherries. We mechanically harvest blueberries. These are established operations, you know, throughout North America and the world. We mechanically harvest citrus. So there are a lot of crops that we do mechanical harvesting in, but some of them are more difficult. So strawberries, for example, there are robots that are being developed right now that are being prototypes are being tested in the field to harvest strawberries. There are machines that are being tested in the field to mechanically harvest apples. And these are being uh, prototypes are being tested in Michigan and New York and Washington State. So there are advancements occurring, but the problem for many of these systems is that the architecture of the plant, the way they are historically grown, is not set up well for a machine to come and identify that particular piece of fruit and harvest it one at a time when, when the fruit is going to be used for a fresh market purpose. It's one thing if you're harvesting a tree and all the fruit are going to be used for processing, where if the fruit has minor damage, it's not going to make any difference. It's another thing if the fruit has to be absolutely perfect without any blemishes or any you know cuts in the skin or those types of things. Under those circumstances, if it was, say, an apple tree, the tree has to be pruned and trained in such a way that a machine can go down the row in the orchard and identify that fruit and pick it off the tree at the right time and where the fruit won't suffer any damage so that it can still be a you know a high quality dessert apple that could get a good price in the market. So these scenarios are different depending on what the end end use of the fruit will be right, but for the right. but for the high end, you know, dessert type fruits that you would see at the grocery store, our mechanical harvesting operations still need quite a bit of tweaking to get to that point and the the growing systems 
that we train these plants to so that a machine can go down the row efficiently. That's research that's in progress. I'm amazed that it can pick blueberries and really small, somewhat softer type fruits as well at all. Yes. And not perfect. Yep. So there are commercial operations in Washington State, in the state of Georgia, in Florida, other places where they are mechanically harvesting blueberries. They're mechanically harvesting red raspberries in the Pacific Northwest, tart cherries up in Michigan, and of course, citrus in Florida. So it is being done, but most of the, like I said, most of the mechanical harvesting of fruits, at least, is for a processing market as opposed to a, a fresh market. Blueberries, I'd say one is, you know, they are mechanically harvesting those and those are going into clamshells for the fresh market. Remy night guards are designed for comfort. Remy sends you an at-home impression kit and has a team of in-house dental professionals to make you custom, comfortable night guards that you'll forget you're wearing all for 80% less than the cost at the dental office. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. Remember, that's S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I.com. So these robots are able to harvest from these trees without tearing the tree apart? Like how do yes. they get in there? For the interior well, fruit? it's a good question. So if you can imagine the old-timey apple tree that would have had a swing hanging off of it that would be maybe 25 or 30 feet tall. You know, those were the apple orchards of long ago. If you go to, into Washington State now into a high-density commercial apple orchard, uh, the trees may actually be as close as 18 inches apart going down the tree row. And it's almost like you have a fence that's going down the row. We call it a trellis, but the tree is is grown on these trellis, these trellises, and they are it's what we call planar architecture, which means that it's like in the XY plane. It's two-dimensional. So if you walk down the row of the apple orchard, it's like a continuous wall of branches with leaves and fruit. And then if you come back on the other side of the row, it looks the same. And the, the depth from one side of the tree canopy to the other may only be two to three feet, as opposed to back in the day when it would be, you know, it could be 20 feet. So the machine goes down the row and it's only looking at something that's in very close proximity to where the arm is that would reach out and grab onto that fruit. And there are sensors that are built in to these robots so they can uh, they can detect color, shape, position. And the way that the branches are trained to this system, they can actually go in there without causing damage to the tree and have a finger-like apparatus that would wrap around the fruit, give it a little twist and then pull it off and then put it into the machine that would then, where the fruit would go down into a bin. So the, the robots exist right now, and they are just trying to increase their efficiency so that they can exceed what can be done by humans and to reduce the potential damage that might co- be caused to the fruit through the operations that they're using. What are some of the, uh, the trade-offs of robots versus people for certain fruits? Like maybe pick one that uh, the trade-offs are real stark. Well, let's just use Apple as an example. A trade-off would be that it would have to do as good a job as the human, <laughs> and it would have to be at least as fast or faster, and it would have to be, you know, the capital cost of buying it and paying it off would have to be make it worthwhile for the farmer. So these robots are not cheap. But, you know, if they run on a battery and they can run for 20 hours a day and they could replace, say, 10 people maybe, then that certainly it could be worthwhile. And Generally speaking, they they can run day or night. So, you know, we have situations where 
machine could go out and be harvesting in the nighttime when it's completely dark outside, where it's actually cooler, where the fruit temperature would be less, which is good for the fruit. And it requires when the fruit come into a packing house, when they are you know, getting the fruit ready to either short or long-term storage, they don't have to cool it as much to get it down to temperature. So it deteriorates less quickly. But the key thing is, you know, that they are reliable, uh, that they don't cause damage, and that the technology is there to make sure that it's accurate in terms of what they're picking. Because you don't want them picking fruit that are immature or that are too small or causing damage to the tree. But the prototypes that they're testing now are very well refined and they're making tremendous progress. So I'm optimistic that we'll have, you know, substantial acreages that are being commercially harvested by robots perhaps 24 hours a day during the harvest season. Well, what happened, you know, this is probably another subject, but as you pick fruit off of a tree or a bush or, you know, whatever off the plant, what happens to the internal, you know, xylem and phloem and juices that are flowing through the plant? Now, all of a sudden, there's less need maybe for certain minerals. Like if you pick a whole tree clean in one day, wouldn't it, sh- I mean, would it suffer shock? Because now it's got a totally different you know, kind of crimped network of where where minerals will flow, like what will happen? Well, that's a good question. So depending on the system, like that is the crop that we're talking about and whether it's something that we would refer to as a once over mechanical harvest, then you have different issues. So let's say tart cherries, for example, which, you know, if you ever had a cherry pie, those come from tart cherries. Yeah, so so like in Michigan, up in, in the Traverse City area, which is where the most important a tart cherry growing region in the United States, these trees are once over harvested. So basically what the farmer does is is near near to harvest time, he uses a special chemical, it's a growth regulator called ethyl, and he sprays the trees. And what it does is it it causes the fruit to all ripen at the same time. So when he goes out there with his mechanical harvesting machine, and he clamps onto the trunk of the tree with this machine and he unfolds, it's like an umbrella upside down underneath the canopy of the tree. And then he shakes the tree with a couple quick bursts of energy. All those fruit fall down onto that upside down umbrella. And then they collect those fruit, put them in cold water, and then they go off to the processing facility. So that's a that's a once over harvest. Everything is harvested at one time. The tree does go through a little bit of shock after that, but it's not it's nothing devastating and it will it will recover in other cases where you have mechanical harvesting uh, you may harvest the plant multiple times because the fruit are not all ripe at the same time so for example blueberries they will go over those plants multiple times from the first harvest until the last harvest and you know the green fruit will still be well attached to the stem and they won't fall off but the red or not red but the you know the really purple blue color fruit that are more mature will come off. And so the mechanical harvesting system varies by the type of the plant, whether you're harvesting it all at once, whether you're coming back over the plant multiple times to pick the fruit. But generally speaking, the plants are durable. And if the mechanical harvest operator is careful, there won't be damage that will occur to the plants and they can grow those plants multiple years and mechanical harvest them, mechanically harvest them year after year. Mm. That's the goal. Okay. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, 
We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. What's another project that you know your uh, your professors are working on that is very interesting to you? Well, so one of the areas, and I'll share this because I spent several years in Washington State, and that's where the main Apple industry is. Um, we were working on a project out there, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, a lot of people think about Washington and they think of Seattle, and they think about how much rain they get on the western side of the Cascades. And, you know, the the primary fruit growing region for tree fruit, at least, is on the eastern side of the Cascades in central Washington and eastern Washington, where it's extremely dry, you know, five to 10 inches of rainfall and blazing heat in the summertime. Now, they can grow fruit there because they have a system of rivers that provide irrigation water, but there's very little cloud activity in the summer. It's very hot. It's very sunny. And those are good conditions to grow fruit. However, they also can be conditions that set the fruit up for sunburn. Just like if you go out on the beach in the summertime and you haven't been out in the sun for a long time and you lay out there for three or four hours, you can get a really bad sunburn. Well, fruit are the same in the sense that the ultraviolet light that's present in the sunlight, it heats up the surface of the fruit and it can cause damage to the skin. It can even cause damage to the fruit tissue below the skin and if it's hot enough for long enough, it can make the fruit damaged such that it is not marketable. And so if you have a very high quality apple, let's say it's a Honeycrisp in a very nice orchard, and you get into the middle or the tail end of July, and you've got temperatures out there that are 110, 115 degrees, which has happened in recent years, if those trees are not protected in any way to reduce the amount of sun that's coming in or to reduce the amount of heat, that is incident on the surface of those fruit, they will burn uh, to the extent that you could have 30 to 40% loss because of sunburn. So we worked with a company out of Israel on some technology where you can put overhead nets over the orchard and the nets are, uh, they allow the sunlight to pass through, but they shade a portion of it. They also help to reduce the amount of ultraviolet light that comes through. So by using these overhead nets, it almost looks like a white, it's a white fabric that's on posts rolled out over the top of the entire orchard. So if you're looking at it from the sky, it's like a white sheet is over the orchard, but it allows air to pass through it and it allows light to pass through it. But what it does is it, it partially shades, reduces that UV, and it can, in some cases, it can completely eliminate sunburn or substantially reduce it. And at the same time, this same fabrics are designed such that they can also protect from hail. And hailstorms are a real problem. And if the hail comes down and it falls on these nets, it won't break through. And so it won't fall down onto the tree and cause all kinds of damage as if, you know, a bunch of gravel is falling from the sky. So, so water can, uh, can still get through and rain and everything? Yes. And, and you can also <laughs> irrigate under it. So most of the farmers out there will irrigate on the ground level. But you can also irrigate above the tree right below the net, and that irrigation can create sort of a mist that can provide some evaporative cooling. So that's another means as well, what you can use in the orchard to reduce the temperature in the orchard, reduce the temperature of the fruit, 
reduce the sunburn and still have a very high quality fruit at the end of the season without suffering those kinds of losses. So I think it also would reduce the soil temperature in the areas that are covered and it yeah, does the temperature of the trees and everything yes. by how much and it maybe reduce evaporation too substantially and in fact what we found in our research was that it reduces the water use requirements of the tree substantially and it reduces tree stress so that the in the afternoon under conditions when the tree might normally start to shut down because it's too hot the trees can continue to be photosynthetically active in the afternoon and that's important because the photosynthates that are produced in the leaves are gonna be supporting fruit growth. And those fruit will end up being larger and of better quality if we can reduce the stress in the orchard, particularly in the afternoons when it gets blazing hot. Do they cover, are they static or do you have ones that are on odors or is that not necessary for just the afternoon sun to block what's it? So it depends. Most of the growers that I'm familiar with will put those up and they will be up for the entire, let's say, from the time that bloom occurs in the spring until right after harvest, they will keep the nets up. But then they will roll the nets back together, you know, post-harvest because they get snow. And so they, there's no reason for the nets to be up there once the trees have naturally dropped their leaves. And the nets will, they will deteriorate over time. They're not a, a permanent structure. You know, they'll last several years, but they will normally roll those nets up in the fall after harvest so they can reuse them again the next year. If they left them up all winter long, then they could be subject to damage and exposure to the elements when, you know, it's going to deteriorate the, the fabric so that they won't last as long. But yeah, it works. It's it's being used on thousands of acres commercially right now. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Uh, is there one more project that we could discuss? Probably three is a good number. So what's another one that's interesting? Let's see. Well, another one that's interesting is just the development of new types of fruit that have resistance to disease. So as you can imagine, I mean, anybody who's ever tried to grow fruit in their backyard knows that there's there are insects and diseases that are happy to eat it. <laughs> and on a commercial scale, that's it, it just is magnified. And so we have active research programs. We have one here at Auburn. I uh, have a new scientist that's working to breed disease resistance into blueberry. But, you know, there are breeding programs, both university-based programs, programs based with the United States Department of Agriculture and with private companies around the country where they're trying to introduce disease resistance in the important fruit crops that we grow. It could be blueberries, it could be grapes, it could be apples. And by, by using traditional breeding methods and introducing traits that can enhance the, the tolerance of these fruits to, to particular diseases can make them much more resilient in the environment and then there's much less need for either pesticide or fungicide or bactericide application to protect the fruit so that it can then ultimately arrive at the end of the season in good quality. And so this type of ongoing research and then basically what a breeder does is they, they make the crosses, they evaluate the selections, and then eventually they may have a few that look really promising. And what they'll then do is they'll take those out and test them in commercial trials on actual production farms in the production regions where most of the fruit are grown of that particular type to see how well they perform relative to the varieties that people typically grow. And if they perform really well under those kinds of conditions for several years, then ultimately they may get patented, they may get named, they may be propagated through commercial nurseries, 
And then pretty soon, we have the opportunity to replace some older varieties that were more vulnerable to disease and hence more costly to manage and also a higher level of risk associated with caring for them and getting them to the market and, and potentially greater losses to something doesn't have require that same level of management in terms of pest and disease control. And it will be of quality such that you can get it to the end of the season and have higher yields and less impact on the environment, which is a win for everybody. So lots of efforts are being uh, invested in this now across the country, really around the world. And I'm excited to see the developments that are going to occur even in the next few years. Yeah. What do you do with I mean, So it doesn't really sound like it needs to be crop rotation when you have fruit trees growing, but I would think that the fruit trees are not going to grow forever. So how are right. orchards um, changed over? When do you have to change trees out? Yeah, like- that's a very good question. So the crop rotation in some cases is vital. Um, but as you can imagine, with a perennial orchard, or let's say it's a great, it's grapes, wine grapes, or if it's tree fruit, even a blueberry plantation, most of these are what we call perennial, meaning they are growing year after year after year, and they're woody plants. So we want them out there for as many years as possible, provided they're providing a profitable return for the farmer. So, you know, an apple orchard could be 15 to 20 years. In some cases, if you go to California or even in Europe, some of these vineyards, you know, they may be 50, 100 years old. Uh, so it, it, it can range tremendously. And the the challenge is that in the in the areas of the country where we commercially grow fruit, the best land for growing fruit probably already has fruit on it. And it has probably been an area where fruit has been grown for many years because it's a good site. Maybe it has good air drainage. It's got good exposure to the sun. There's access to water. It's in an area where historically they don't have frosts or freezes that are problematic. The soil quality is good. Well, when you have um, these plantings, say maybe it's 15 years or something, and you push it out and come back in with a new orchard, let's say it's peaches, for example. In the southeast, we have a problem with something called oak root rot disease. Well, oak root rot disease is a, is a fungus that lives in the soil and it attacks the roots and can cause the roots of the tree to die. And it can happen two, three, four, five feet deep in the soil. Well, if you come in with a bulldozer and push up that orchard after 15 years, because you're going to come back in and put the newest and latest and greatest peach in there, maybe it's disease resistant to something. Well, there may be dead root pieces two, three, four, five feet down in the soil that have this fungus in it. And the fungus is still alive. And you cannot dig it out of the ground. It's it's it'd be cost prohibitive to do that much disturbance of that site. So you put in all these brand new baby trees, and then after two, maybe three years, the root systems are growing deeper in the soil and they come in contact with the soil-borne fungus, and it starts to grow up the, the root system to the crown of the tree. And now you've got trees that are three, four years old that are dying from this disease that's resident in the soil. So These are some of the issues that growers face as it relates to what we call replant sites. And like I said, the reason they replant on those sites is because it's their best sites in terms of reliable cropping of fruit. But if it's a soil-borne pathogen that lives in the soil and even is very deep in the soil, that may be something very difficult to eradicate. And the real answer to that problem would be to have a a rootstock of the tree that would be resistant to that particular disease. And there are scientists that are working on this right now. So for peaches, it is a very serious concern, particularly in the southeastern United States, 
And there are several scientists working to try and address the problem of what we call oak root rot disease and develop either production practices or resistant rootstocks so that they can survive on soils where this pathogen may be present. It sounds like the history, like a detailed history of these orchards is really important to keep. Because like you said, you know, three years later, a fungus that affected the trees, if you didn't write it down and make you know good note of it, it can come back and kill everything. And that'd be a huge time waste. That'd be terrible. I've been there and done that. I've seen it. I visited orchards when I was a specialist in South Carolina where, you know, we use the farmers would use this term. Okay. The term is virgin peach ground. Okay, what virgin peach ground to a farmer means is it is a site where they never grew peaches on that ground before, and maybe their family has owned that land for 100 years, okay? So in that case, you'd say, aha, that would be a perfect place. If there's never been peaches there before, well, surely there's not going to be any of this root rot pathogen in the ground. Well, unfortunately, in this particular case, it's called oak root rot. It's, it's a pathogen of oak trees also. And so if that site was a formerly just, a, let's say it was a, a native stand of oak trees, it, it was hardwood forest or whatever, and they came in with a bulldozer and bulldozed out all those trees and, and then worked up the ground and prepared it for planting an orchard. And I saw this in South Carolina. I visited a farm where three-year-old peach trees were dying of, our, of oak root rot. The, the scientific name is armillaria. They were dying of our malaria. And the farmer said, well, we've never had peaches on this ground before. And I said, well, what was on the ground before? He says, well, we we, we cleared out a forest and we came in. I said, well, there oak tre- were there oak trees out there? He said, well, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> and that was a problem, right? So part of our job in, in the research and extension outreach, the land-grant mission of what we do at our universities is that we we do our very best to try and educate farmers on you know, what the risks are and and how to make decisions. And we can come out and help them assess a site and give them good advice. But these are sometimes things that happen and you just like, you know, you just shake your head and you're like, oh my goodness, (laughs) what next? (laughs) Root rot can affect any tree or it just affects only peaches? Like, no, it doesn't. A a schedule, like, okay, if we get affected, then we'll we'll go in with a different kind of tree. Yes. Yeah. So that's a good point. So what I will say, this particular pathogen has what we call a broad host range. That means there's lots of different types of woody plants that it will cause damage to. So we we have a good idea of what those plants are. And if the farmer was to say, well, this was a previous site that had, a, had oaks, oak trees or peaches or whatever, then, you know, my advice to them, generally speaking, would be, don't grow a woody plant or a fruiting crop that is sensitive to the oak root rot pathogen or grow one where you know that there's resistance to that pathogen in that plant on things that may be in a shorter rotation like you know we talk about crop rotation with uh, our vegetables and maybe fruits like strawberries that you know we're not going to grow them necessarily on the same ground year after year after year we can use cover crops we can use other management practices in the soil that can help to knock those pathogens down even to a, a non-existent level so that we can come back after a couple of years in, in a rotation scheme and not be at risk. But you know, when you're talking about woody plants that are going to be there for, say, 10 or more years, you don't want to have any risk, really. That's going to be a long-term investment. And in the case of orchards like I was talking about in Washington, 
by the time they buy the trees and they put in the irrigation and they put in the trellis system and everything else, maybe even put some overhead nets over top, you might be looking at $40,000 an acre of investment. And they, they can't afford to have that investment fail. You know, it's they, they need to be to reduce their risk as much as possible so that once those trees start fruiting, that they can have, you know, profit long term and, and make that money back and then obviously make profit beyond that. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, what what has been the so I guess if that happens, you have to go in there and really evaluate uh, what kind of rootstocks and, and trees won't be affected by it. Yes. You know, when we most of our I will say this. You know, most of our commercial fruit growers in the United States are really smart. Many of them have been college educated. Many of them are second, third, fourth, fifth generation fruit growers. They may partner with universities to do trials on their farms. They're up up to date on the latest technology. To the extent that they can afford it, you know, they're trying to make business decisions that will enable them to reduce their risk and have the highest possibility of profitability and success. So you know, they, in some cases, they are, they know as much as the specialists do, quite honestly. I wouldn't say that's the norm, but I know that there are fruit growers out there who even have doctorates who are commercial growers. So, but we're there to help them. We can help assess the risk, you know, look at the history of the land and what they've done. We have a lot of projects going on around the country where we're testing all different kinds of rootstocks that are suitable for sites that have issues. And we have a national program where we test different rootstocks of different fruit trees all around the country in different places. And the scientists get together every year and talk about that. And then they make local recommendations to the farmers based on what performed well in maybe Idaho or Michigan or New York or Alabama. Uh, we're hosting one of those meetings here in Auburn in, in November. And it's interesting because as you can imagine, something that performs well in the upstate of New York may not do well in central Alabama. So, you know, that's part of the reason that we test these plants in different parts of the United States, because the climatic conditions are different. The winter conditions are different. The number of, of growing days is different. And just because it does well in one part of the country doesn't mean it'll necessarily do well someplace else. And if I was to go to my growers here in Alabama and say, well, you should do this because it works well in Washington state, uh, it might not work well in Alabama. And if we haven't tested it here, I could be giving them bad advice. No, makes sense. Um, one last question that came to mind. Is there software that models a tree and its branching network and mathematically calculates like for, you know, for a certain amount of nutrient, how it will disperse throughout throughout the branching pattern of the tree? And maybe you can, um, you know, change the pattern, uh, selectively prune, I guess it would be like pruning software to maximize the yield of, of certain fruits at different stages. So I will say that some of that modeling work has been done and the the models are reasonably mature. The one that I'm most familiar with is one that was developed by a scientist whose name is Ted DeYoung. And he's a, he just recently retired for, from the University of California, Davis. And he had spent many years with a number of graduate students and visiting scientists and postdocs. And it is, it's related to, to uh, the peach tree. And so they they have modeled that. They've looked at the carbon assimilation. They've looked at uh, fruiting, how much carbohydrate is available at different times of the year and those types of things. So yes, it's not necessarily a commercial product that a farmer can, I think that they can go out and buy. But I think we have 
for those of us who work in the area of uh, tree fruit physiology, we have a lot of good data upon which we can base decision making that relates to how and when to prune, how much thinning to do when you're trying to reduce the crop load of the tree so that the remaining fruit will get large, practices that can be done throughout the growing season to enhance the health of the tree, to reduce stress so that you know maximal photosynthesis can occur, that those fruit can develop the size that they need to, and that you can have proper conditions in the fall for them to get good color and have you know a lot of the reserves stored up in them that you need so that they will be good quality when they get to the consumer. So to say there's an app that will give you all that, and there's not one that I'm aware of, but we have a lot of apps that are that are useful for orchard management decisions. But they're more in the area of uh, things like pest management and so on that you know utilize weather conditions and even have electronic monitors for pests out in the orchard, temperature, humidity, rainfall, and can give a grower an idea of when he should put out a protective material if he's going to be concerned about fire blight or risk of a freeze or those kinds of things. So there's a lot of really good technology that's available at the farmer's fingertips right now. I'd say we, of course, we're, you know, we're at the most advanced stage of technology in orchards, in orchard management ever. And um, the lot, a lot of areas in robotics, we've got robotic sprayers that are going down orchards and, and spraying trees now. Lots of very mm. cool stuff. I was going to, one thing I wanted to mention to you is, as I was making some notes here, my my first cousin and her husband live in South Australia and they have a they have a business where they raise uh, biological insects and predatory mites that they use for biological control in orchards and vineyards and greenhouses in, in Australia. And they actually have a commercial application where they fly drones over the top of avocado trees, which are very large trees, and they drop predator mites out of the drones into the tops of these trees to control the mite populations that can cause damage to the trees and cause ultimate damage to the fruit. And this is commercial, so very cool. And there's a lot of other really neat technology that's going on right now that farmers can avail themselves of, which I think is is just fascinating. Excellent. Well, Desmond, where can people find out more about all the projects that you're overseeing? Well, I would say there are some terrific trade magazines that are available online and that are in print. There's one called The Good Fruit Grower, which is based out of Washington. They have a monthly issue that comes out, and these have all the latest and greatest stories about everything related to the fruit industry in terms of technology and those types of things. So that's accessible out there. There are numerous tree fruit websites. Washington State has the one that I developed when I was there. Here in Alabama, we have information at the Alabama Cooperative Extension Systems website. And then some of my faculty have their own individual web pages. So, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of different places. But like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I'm I'm advising, but I'm not actually actively doing research in these areas right now. So I'm I'm serving more as a as a mentor to my scientists and administering the programs. But I'm up to date, <laughs> at least on what's going on, because this is obviously an area that I'm quite passionate about and care a lot about. And I think we're our scientists are doing some amazing work to help our farmers, and we need high quality, nutritious food, right? And mm-hmm. and fruit fruits and vegetables are vital to our nutrition and I'd say our fruit industry is as is advanced as it's ever been, and uh, the quality of the product that we're producing and the the safety of it to the consumer is is really excellent. 
it's a great time to be a fruit consumer. Well, excellent. Well, Desmond, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You had some very good questions. Thank you. Before you go, make sure to protect your smile from teeth grinding and clenching with a Remy Custom Night Guard. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.